Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Life and Times of Canadian Political Philosopher C.B. McPherson. I've never had an impression of Muff that he accepted ready-made solutions of any sort. I think he was always trying to find out. He thought about things that are worthwhile thinking about, and he looked at these things without essentially being prejudiced other than by his moral integrity. For me, his greatest influence has been his clarity, his mode of thinking. And I go back to his essays, not so much in search of solutions, but in search of the process of clarity. I really cannot remember if I ever heard him lose his temper. Whereas all the rest of us in the family would get mad and yell our heads off. But I can't remember an occasion on which he actually raised his voice in anger. I think what he was doing, above all, was attempting to show that there was a crucially positive dimension to liberalism and that liberalism could not maintain that most positive element unless it became incorporated in socialism. And I think implicitly he was saying to socialists that the socialist project involves the retrieval of liberalism. C.B. McPherson was Canada's best-known political thinker, noted both for his critique of liberalism and for his attempt to save what he thought was best in it. When he died, on July the 21st, 1987, the tributes came from around the world. His books have been translated into eight languages, and his ideas are as avidly discussed in Latin America and Japan as they are in North America. McPherson's academic home was the University of Toronto, where he taught for over 40 years. His students remember him as a persuasive teacher who presented ideas with freshness and clarity. His colleagues recall his humor, his civility, and his integrity. His scholarship was legendary, and so was his commitment to the university as a community of scholars. Tonight on Ideas, we remember Bruff McPherson with a look back at his life and work. This is the final program in our two-part series. It's written and presented by David Cayley. In 1962, at the age of 51, Bruff McPherson published the book that made him famous, The Political Theory of Possessive Individualism, a study of the 17th century origins of modern liberalism. This work set a direction which he was to follow in all his subsequent writings. Possessive individualism became his master concept, the term which he thought epitomized liberal thought, showing both what was good in it, concern for the individual, and what was wrong with it, defining individuality in terms of possessions. Two years after the book was published, the CBC asked McPherson to present the 1965 Massey Lectures. He called his lectures the real world of democracy, and in one of them, he tried to explain what possessive individualism is and why it is a perverse conception of human nature. I want to suggest that our moral and political theory took the wrong turning when it began to interpret the human essence as possession or acquisition. Before the rise of the all-inclusive market society, the traditional view had been that the human essence was activity in pursuit of a conscious rational purpose. Then, with the rise of the market society, the essence of rational purpose was taken to be the pursuit of maximum material possession. This was a fairly realistic conclusion at the time because with the rise of the market society, possessions were becoming the only effective means an individual could have to the achievement of any rational purpose. Yet as a social theory, it left a good deal to be desired. For as soon as you take the essence of man to be the acquisition of more things for himself, as soon as you make the essential human quality the striving for possessions rather than creative activity, you are caught up in an insoluble contradiction. Human beings are sufficiently unequal in strength and skill 
that if you put them into an unlimited contest for possessions, some will not only get more than others, but will get control of the means of labor to which the others must have access. The others, then, cannot be fully human, even in the restricted sense of being able to get possessions, let alone in the original sense of being able to use their faculties in purposive, creative activity. So, in choosing to make the essence of man the striving for possessions, we make it impossible for many men to be fully human. By defining man as an infinite appropriator, we make it impossible for many men to qualify as men. This is the heart of McPherson's critique of capitalism. It centers on what Karl Marx calls the alienation of labor and what McPherson calls the transfer of powers. Abilities is probably the nearest equivalent to what McPherson means by powers. When people have to sell their powers to live, he says, they give up more than they get back. They give up the profit, which is made on their powers, what Marx called surplus value, and they give up the purposes to which they could have put their powers had they not had to sell them. This was how he expressed the idea in his Massey lectures. If you take the powers of a man to be simply the strength and skill which he possesses, then when he sells the use of that strength and skill to another at its market price, there is no net transfer of any of his powers to another. He is selling something he owns for what it is worth. He gets no less than he gives. But if you take the powers of a man to be not just the strength and skill he possesses, but his ability to use that strength and skill to produce something, the case is altogether different. For then, his powers must include his being able to put his strength and skill to work for purposes he has consciously formed. His powers must therefore include access to something to work on, access to the land or materials or other capital without which his capacity to labor cannot become active labor and so cannot produce anything or do anything to his purpose. This is exactly the situation most men are in and necessarily so in the capitalist market society. They must, in the nature of the system, permit a net transfer of part of their powers to those who own the means of labor. To McPherson, the transfer of powers was a violation of human nature, which he thought of as something real and distinct. He denied the prevalent contemporary view that human beings are just what their environment makes them. Instead, he aligned himself with the older philosophy of Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas. Like them, he thought that human beings have a definite end or purpose, an essence, he also calls it. And this essence is conscious, rational, creative action. Alkis Kantos is professor of political science at the University of Toronto. He was a close associate of Prof. McPherson's. He believed that there is a human essence to which certain needs correspond. It's also true that this human essence has been deformed or dehumanized or changed, but not in a permanent sense of change, has been reoriented and disoriented under certain historical circumstances, primarily capitalism. And he believes that the shining forth of this human essence empirically can only take place in a specific society in a society which does not encourage, does not aid and abet possessive individualism. McPherson's difficulty, and McPherson understood it to be the true political difficulty, is the stage of transition from the present society to this other stage. And so his constant argument, and very powerful and lucid argument, is to point out there analytically the possibility of differentiating human essence from its false manifestations in false needs. And therefore, to emancipate us from the inability of seeing how things could be otherwise if we posit human beings differently. So that, in other words, to be able to see without the blinders of the specific historical moment. In every age, McPherson once wrote, men always confuse the system they live under with the unalterable laws of human nature. But how to devise political concepts more faithful to human nature? McPherson's response was to try to revise the concepts of classical liberalism. 
This was a key advance for the Marxist tradition to which McPherson belonged. Marxists had generally thought of liberalism as nothing more than capitalist apologetics. McPherson argued that what was good in liberalism should be preserved. The value of his approach can be seen in his treatment of property, one of the cornerstones of liberal thought. Up until the 17th century, he argued, property had often meant a right of access to something rather than a right to exclude others from it. Rights to hunt or glean or pasture animals were often held in common. Then, with possessive individualism, came the idea of exclusive private ownership. Today, we can hardly conceive of property in any other terms. But McPherson made a strong case for reviving the older sense of the term, a sense still in use in other cultures, and for once again thinking of property as a right to use things rather than a right to control and accumulate them. Frank Cunningham heads the philosophy department at the University of Toronto. He illustrates McPherson's idea of property with a story. We live across the street from a park, and a friend of ours who lives uh, on a, a reservation in the Northwest Territories was visiting us with her two children. I guess they were around four or five years old, one of whom was named Stanley. And we sat on our porch and watched Stanley and his sister go across the street to play in the park. And it chanced that there were some other children there, one of whom had brought a tricycle and left the tricycle and went over to some swings to play on the swings. And Stanley went over to the tricycle and got on it and started riding it about. Whereupon the mother of the child whose tricycle it was raced across the park and jerked Stanley off and started berating Stanley for taking her son's tricycle. And the son, in fact, started crying that his tricycle had been taken. Later on, Stanley kind of cried about this, but at, at the moment, he simply looked bewildered. We were witnessing this scene, some consternation, and his mother explained it to us. She said, you know, where he comes from on the res in the village, in the reservation, the notion of that tricycle belonging to the other kid when the other kid didn't want to play with it is completely foreign. Uh, Stanley uh, just doesn't understand what's going on right now. Uh, now, if they both wanted it at the same time, there might have been some, to maybe even a fight. But uh, the notion that that tricycle belonged to somebody who had, didn't need to use it is not something that you would find amongst kids playing on the reservation. Now, uh, this story, to me, uh, is a perfect illustration of uh, the two concepts of property. The kid's mother in the park was operating on an exclusive concept of property, and Stanley had been brought up with, as it were, an inclusive concept of property. Now, if Stanley can have that idea, and the rest of the kids on the reservation uh, can have that idea, why can't we all have that approach to property? That's McPherson's challenge. When Bruff McPherson joined the Department of Political Economy at the University of Toronto in 1935, he committed himself to a life of teaching and scholarship. It turned out to be a life supremely suited to his temperament and talents. Northrop Fry says that McPherson had the ability to think about things as if for the first time, and this quality made him a teacher who could lead people into real intellectual discovery. In his graduate seminars, his former students say, he knew how to listen and learn from criticism. Within the field of political theory, he was a tireless controversialist, reviewing books and debating ideas with contemporaries like John Rawls and Isaiah Berlin. He lived the academic life with real relish. Alkes Kantos came to the University of Toronto at McPherson's urging and still recalls the conversation that made up his mind. When I first met him, I said to him, because whenever I had met uh, as a student and subsequently great names, usually they are very taken by their own uh, fame, and it's quite a sickening effect. So McPherson, I said to him, uh, what would you say if a student of yours whom you convince is very bright, 
who is extremely bright, but according to you, you have no doubts as to his or her mental abilities, were to come to you and say, Professor McPherson, you're very important on all that, I enjoyed your classes, but really, I think fundamentally your thought is wrong. And what I was looking for is to see if he will say, as most people say, well, I must have made a mistake, he's not that intelligent. And McPherson laughed and he said, um, what uh, year is this student in? And I said, what difference does it make? And he said, well, a great deal, he says. Because if he's graduating, I will say, what a pity, such a bright individual that hasn't seen the truth. But if he's not graduating, I still have time to persuade him or her. <laughs> and I always thought that's a, a very interesting insight to his thought, and that, in some sense, persuaded me that it's, uh, it would be delightful to study with him, because he's not a, a, a kind of a despotic individual, that the, here is the doctrine, you have to accept it. He will always argue and argue and argue and try yeah. to persuade. I think that's his understanding of the individual, and that's his understanding of uh, what he takes to be positive in liberalism. McPherson was deeply committed to the university as a community based on free discussion and inquiry. During his long career at the University of Toronto, he played a prominent role in university affairs. His most notable contribution came in the 1960s, when the traditional idea of the university was being sharply challenged by the new left. McPherson chaired a commission on undergraduate instruction in the arts and sciences. Claude Bissell was then president of the University of Toronto, and he recalls the circumstances which led him to appoint McPherson to the commission. The student left, and the student left uh, was a small group, but it dominated the campus in many ways, as people of ideas usually do. And their theory of the university was that it should be a sort of perpetual seminar. And McLuhan's idea, but not quite McLuhan. And uh, students, uh, staff would be first among equals. They wouldn't be father figures. They would lead the university in discussions of immediate social issues. This is this putting it in its most radical and its simplest form, but that was the sort of concept. And they were opposed to any, any suggestion of uh, oh, professionalism or elitism, of course. And they thought that we were uh, responsible for uh, that kind of attitude in, in the curriculum. And to a certain extent, we were, because the University of Toronto had been the university which was most concerned with uh, what, what we called the honor courses, which were elitish, elitish courses. This is the Faculty of Arts and Science. They were based upon specialization, although it was modified specialization. You had, you had, you had some uh, assisting subjects, but primarily you emerged as a, as a person with a strong scholarly background in a specific subject. And it was a great course for graduate schools. The Toronto graduate was famous, I think, throughout North America as a person who was well prepared. But it was specialized, and it was elitish. Well, Bruff was known as a, as a distinguished scholar. He was a graduate of one of our honor courses. He'd done postgraduate work in the UK. He'd established himself as a scholar, not simply as an exponent of Marxism or some version of Marxism, but as a scholar in his own right. And he was liked as a human being. Moreover, he had not allied himself with the student left in any, in any ostentatious way. Some members of the staff did, and complicated my problem, of course, and everybody else's problem. But Bruff stood aloof from it. So I thought, here's an ideal man. He understands the student opinions. At the same time, he's a distinguished scholar. He's a man whom the students respect, and here's our, here's our ideal man for this very complex subject. The McPherson Commission reported in 1967 it recommended an end to the old honors system and more of a say and more choice for students. The idea was to eliminate elitism and excessive specialization while still maintaining high standards. These recommendations were implemented over loud protests from the old guard. Controversy continued for many years. U of T professor Ursula Franklin was a friend and admirer of McPherson's. She thinks the report was based on a noble idea but the idea was sabotaged by the changing role of the university. What it had not really anticipated, and nobody did or could anticipate, is to what extent education became job training. People didn't look at the university as a place where one spends two or three or four years of one's life getting the best and most rounded education, 
but something where one not only obtains knowledge, but most importantly, the certification of knowledge. What was lacking in the report in, uh, was the recognition that to many people, it isn't the knowledge, but the certification of the knowledge that mattered. And that was Prof considered minimum standards became maximum standards through no fault of his own, but through the change of time and the change of the place of the university in the scheme of things. I still think that the it's just about the ideal scheme for a university, except that it assumes ideal students, which we don't have. The McPherson Commission was only one of McPherson's many involvements in university affairs. He also chaired a committee which dealt with faculty grievances over the granting of tenure. Ursula Franklin served with him on that committee, and she says it showed her a whole new side of the man. What was so striking, and which I would not have seen had I not had that experience in terms of Prof. McPherson, was his thoroughness, his patience, his utter and total and unmovable set of good manners, that things where I would have said, you idiot, didn't you see? Brough would say, well, you know, it might have been apparent to you on reflection that one could have avoided some of the problems. And not ironically, not mockingly, but seriously. And in that, I saw for the first time the manifestation of that sense of justice that Prof really felt to his bone and to the detriment of his own time and intellectual work that obligation that everybody, fool or not, deserves justice, deserves the time it needs to untangle their muddled thinking. And there was a sense of humor, a sense of justice, and an awful lot of work. McPherson's commitment also extended beyond the walls of his own university. He was always a zealous defender of academic freedom, and in one notable case, intervened with the University of Ottawa to save the job of Stanley Ryerson. Ryerson was a friend from student days. He had lost his first teaching job back in the 30s because of his political views. Then he worked for the Communist Party. But after 1968, his views changed. After being in Prague in 1968, I left the left-wing movement and uh, tried to get back into teaching. And an invitation from the University of Ottawa was countermanded by the, their high command. And it was <clears throat> the intervention of Brough McPherson that prevailed on them to give in, and I began to teach again. Stanley Ryerson is still teaching, now at the University of Quebec at Montreal. Politically, Bruff McPherson was always on the left. His politics took shape in the 30s, when the choice between capitalism and socialism seemed clear-cut. He opted definitively for socialism and never wavered from his original view that a society of justice and equality could be based only on the overcoming of capitalism. When the new left appeared on the campus in the 60s, they could look to Bruff McPherson as virtually the only Canadian example of serious socialist scholarship. But by then, McPherson was in his 50s, and in university terms, very much an establishment figure. Reg Whitaker is a professor of political science at York University. He was at U of T at the end of the 60s, and he recalls a certain ambivalence towards McPherson among the student revolutionaries. McPherson was perceived as being by many as being very uh, conservative and stodgy and, uh, you know, somebody who was out there in, the, uh, in his study in his ivory tower and wasn't engaged in the, in the real world of uh, politics. And it was only, I think, 
little later than that still when in fact the the kind of enthusiasm of uh, of that era waned and uh, people began to realize the limitations uh, they, you know thought the revolution was about to be made in 1968 and it wasn't and uh, and then in fact uh, in many ways his, his his importance i think grew once again because in fact there was much in his writing which spoke to the the problems and the limitations of the uh, of the kind of gung-ho adventurist leftism of uh, of that era one of the reasons for McPherson's renewed importance as a role model for the academic left was his position within the field of political science. McPherson had always insisted that political science is fundamentally a moral science, concerned not just with what is, but with what ought to be. And he argued that the subjects of this science, human beings, should be viewed in an integrated way and not through a series of narrow academic disciplines. It was this position which led him to fight strenuously when the traditional field of political economy began to fall apart into separate academic departments of economics and political science. McPherson took the view that politics and economics were inseparable. The issue came to a head over the question of whether the journal of the field should be divided into two. One of McPherson's allies in the struggle was Irene Spry now Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa. I was in England at the time, and Buff was, of course, in Toronto. And the issue came up at the Learneds as to whether the um, journal, which had been the Journal of Political Economics and Political Science, should be separated into a, a Journal of Economics and a Journal of Political Science. And uh, I found out afterwards, I didn't know at the time, but I wrote enraged letters when, when I heard that they had decided to, to divide it, because I wasn't there at the time and didn't take part in the discussion, but uh, learned afterwards that Bruff had fought tooth and nail against separating economics and politics, because it seemed to him, as I think it seemed to everybody who was influenced by Ennis, certainly, uh, that you couldn't separate economics and politics, that it had to be political economy to make any sense at all. Economists tend to think that because they think they can measure things that they're working at, they are more scientific than other social scientists who, who are dealing with data that they can't always measure. And so they feel they should uh, go off by themselves and practice their mathematical analysis uh, separately, without trying to take into account the political elements. But uh, the only way in which you can uh, subject problems to very concrete mathematical analysis is by simplifying them to the point at which you have uh, controllable things to measure. And uh, if you simplify human activities, if you whittle away the, the social institutions and the political activities, you're left with such a limited aspect of human activity that it, it's unintelligible. The problem runs the other way as well. Political theory, without its economic elements, also becomes unintelligible. And McPherson thought that this was what had happened to contemporary liberal theory. It had denied or ignored the nature of the capitalist system, which to McPherson meant, basically, exploitation. Classical liberal theory, he thought, had been more honest. So long as no alternative society seemed possible, he said, political thinkers could be analysts and apologists at the same time. But when the legitimacy of the capitalist system was finally challenged by an articulate, politically ambitious working class in the 19th century, liberal theory changed direction. It grew ambivalent. Wanting a better world but unwilling to see that capitalism had become the real fetter on further social progress. The epitome of that ambivalence to McPherson was the thought of the 19th century English liberal John Stuart Mill. Mill held a very high conception of human nature. The end of man, he wrote, is the highest and most harmonious development of his powers. But Mill failed to see, according to McPherson, that the realization of such a vision was impossible in capitalist society. 
Alki's Contos. Before he died, he was uh, planning a major work on John Stuart Mill. He had his collected works, and that's what he was working on. And so because he began to understand that uh, only a systematic treatment of Mill will sharpen McPherson's own arguments about liberal democratic theory and capitalism. And I found it always very interesting that he thought a major work on Mill by him, C.P. McPherson, would be more important and constructive than a major work on Marx. Mill's thought was so strategic for McPherson because it was in Mill that he saw the possibility of getting liberal theory back on the rails. Mill had projected into liberalism ethical ideals which could never be fulfilled within capitalism. This left liberal theory, in effect, all dressed up with nowhere to go. The result, eventually, was the fading of these ideals. Political science lost its visionary gleam and began to be satisfied by nothing more than a description of how things are. The way out of this box, McPherson thought, was to go back to the original error in Mill and correct it. Then liberals would be able to see that the only possible fulfillment of what is best in liberalism lies in socialism. Ruff McPherson was a political theorist, and he wrote very little about practical politics. But he did sometimes take positions on the issues of the day. One such case was the FLQ crisis of 1970. McPherson took part in a debate at the University of Toronto, and Reg Whitaker was there. I have a very vivid memory of McPherson uh, appearing at a debate, I believe it was at Hart House, and uh, taking the side of of uh, the government and uh, and uh, justifying the the imposition of the War Measures Act more or less uh, on uh, in fact ironically on I think very Hobbesian grounds that uh, you couldn't allow a parallel power to exist that would uh, which you saw the FLQ as a parallel power and that you could only have one one sovereign in effect and and so on and it, intellectually uh, a very as one would expect, a very solid and and uh, and I think probably looking back at it, although it was very hard to see it in those terms at the time, uh, probably a much better case than than was being presented against, because of its intellectual purpose. There is in McPherson's files a fascinating letter written around this time to Pierre Trudeau. The purpose of the letter was to plead for a quick revocation of the War Measures Act in order to prevent further abuse of civil liberties in Quebec. But in it, McPherson also expresses his support for the government's initial decision to call in the military. In 1946, during the Gazenko spy affair, McPherson had wholeheartedly defended the rights of the people detained without trial under the War Measures Act. Why he now expressed even qualified approval for the Trudeau government's actions is puzzling. Perhaps McPherson didn't really understand or sympathize with Quebec nationalism. Or perhaps he really did believe that there was an apprehended insurrection in Quebec. Another occasion on which McPherson addressed day-to-day political questions involved NDP leader Ed Broadbent. Broadbent had been a student of McPherson's in the 1960s, and after entering politics, he continued to read McPherson with keen interest. Then, one day he received some political advice about the new Democratic Party from his old mentor. Bruff had written to me following uh, a provincial election setback and made the argument that the party ought to have a, what would be described in present terminology as a, a more leftist program that, in his judgment, from the point of view of practical politics, the uh, particular uh, policy framework of the Ontario NDP at that time uh, was not adequate to its potential, that if uh, we had had a more leftist-oriented program, in his judgment, the party would have practically done better. Um, So, as as was always the case, his argument was a serious one, 
and in this particular case, I happen to believe a profoundly mistaken one. But uh, it was the kind of discussion that I enjoyed, because in, in that particular instance, for example, of my own judgment was that the ideological framework of the NDP uh, frankly had little to do with uh, the electoral setback, um, that many other aspects of political life, the positioning of other political parties, the given personality of our own leader at a given time, as well as other leaders. Uh, there are many other aspects of change in political society than political philosophy. Aside from this intervention with Ed Broadbent, McPherson was not active in the NDP, though he was a supporter. In his writings, he deals with the question of how to build socialism only in quick hints and short sketches. Leo Panitch is a professor of political science at York University. He thinks McPherson's lack of attention to the question of political change was a consequence of his attitude towards Marxism. McPherson used Marxism as a critical tool in his analysis of liberal thought, Panitch says, but he largely ignored Marxism as a prescription for a future society. Mine main criticism of Bruff uh, is that he didn't see it as his task as a socialist intellectual whose life was bound up with thinking about what are good political institutions. He didn't see it as his task until very late to try to turn that brilliant mind to the question of what would and should socialist political institutions be. I often wondered whether that was something that was induced by a certain orientation to a defense of the Soviet Union in the context of the Cold War, uh, which, you know, one can admire. I mean, seeing... Uh, I mean, not, not, not ever wanting to heap any more condemnation than what was uh, already being heaped on it uh, by so many, you know, unprincipled people. And if anything Bruff was, he was a very principled man. Leo Panitch's criticism is borne out, I think, by McPherson's 1965 Massey lectures. In them, McPherson defined democracy not just as a system of elections and competing parties, but as any system of government in the interests of the people. He analyzed three variants of democracy, the Soviet Union, the populist one-party states of the Third World, and the capitalist liberal democracies. The section on the Soviet Union takes the theory of one-party dictatorship leading, when material conditions permit, to a classless society pretty much at face value. How the Soviet Union can ever actually make the transition from one-party rule to free political institutions, he doesn't say. Instead of criticizing the Soviet Union and its justifying Marxist-Leninist theory, he uses it as a stick to beat the liberal democracies. The success of the Soviet system, he argues, is going to force us to face the fatal contradiction of liberal democracy, the contradiction between democracy as an ethical ideal and capitalism as a system of exploitation. And then, having established the idea that there are now competing versions of democracy on the world stage, he comes to a remarkable conclusion. What I'm suggesting is that in the world from now on, power and influence will depend on moral advantage. And I'm suggesting that we in the West will decline in power unless we can discard our possessive market morality. Power-oriented as we are, this argument should surely be decisive. If I am right in saying that national power from now on is going to depend on moral advantage, on moral stature, then the claims of morality and power will coincide. The way to national power will be the recognition and promotion of equal human rights. And the pursuit of these ends will bring an enlargement of individual power as well. Not the powers of individuals over others or at the expense of others, but their powers to realize and enjoy their fullest human capacities. McPherson delivered this lecture over 20 years ago. The fateful marriage of morality and power never happened. Neither national nor international politics became a moral competition. 
McPherson's analysis turned out to be an overly neat intellectual scheme projected onto the messy, heartbreaking world of power politics. McPherson was a brilliant and clear-sighted analyst of political theories. When it came to political practice, he was often no freer from wishful thinking than the rest of us. Another criticism which can be made of McPherson has to do with the role of technology in his scheme of things. McPherson saw technology as essentially neutral, a force to be shaped by the social system rather than a force in itself. It's a view that Charles Taylor questions. Professor Taylor teaches political theory at McGill. He shared the Mar classical Marxist upbeat attitude to technology, and he shared their view that we could overcome scarcity and that the overcoming of scarcity would be what allows us to take a step beyond. And that's certainly true. There's a very big issue there on which we, I suppose, I stand on the other side, that I think that, that there are grave problems about advanced technological society and, and that, above all, it itself, in a sense, prevents a, our arriving at an age of abundance, or overcoming scarcity, because it generates needs, in a certain sense, as fast as it, almost as fast as it meets them technological progress. So in these respects, I'm considerably less optimistic about the future, about, about that element of the future, or counting on that to help us beyond present civilization than he was. McPherson's optimism depended on his unshakable faith in the possibility of a non-market society. To McPherson, capitalist market relations and socialist non-market relations were clearly posed alternatives. Critic William Lease thinks that this reflects the originating moment of McPherson's thought, the 1930s, when capitalist democracy appeared bound to break apart into fascism and socialism. But history, he says, passed McPherson by. After the Second World War, a hybrid of capitalism and socialism developed, and political options changed. William Lease teaches at Simon Fraser University. He's just completed an intellectual biography of McPherson. The earlier stark opposition between capitalist market relations and so some form of socialist non-market relations is gone. We have in capitalist society a restricted set of market relations in which society and the state puts boundaries on the range of market principles. And on the other side, in those, soci those societies which are nominally dedicated to socialism and communism, they're all madly scrambling to reintroduce market principles as fast as they can, because their economies, in most cases, are in shambles. Lack of realism about markets, about technology, and about the political face of socialism. These constitute what I think are the major criticisms that can be made of McPherson's thought. Most of them draw attention to the unexamined Marxist assumptions which are built into the foundations of his theory. McPherson's strength was his powerful and discriminating critique of liberalism. His weakness may have been that he never exposed Marxism to the same searching scrutiny. When Bruff McPherson died, he left many friends behind him. Talking to them, I began to realize that I was dealing with a man of quite extraordinary goodwill. One of his close friends over the years was Herb Whitaker, the former drama critic for the Globe and Mail. He was a frequent visitor to the McPherson household and to McPherson Island, the family cottage near Gananoque. He remembers Bruff's modesty. Occasionally, as the uh, Japanese edition would come out, or the Spanish edition would come out of his works, uh, he might uh, venture into a slight, mild boast, but it was never very uh, dominant. His modesty and his reserve, and then the very quiet humor that sustained him all of the time, was much more dominant than anything uh, aggressive in, in argument sake. It was delightful at the, in his last years, there was a family uh, gathering for other people's sherry party, and 
uh, some of his colleagues got around him and started to uh, praise him and ask him about this and that. And it's the first, it had been the first time I'd ever seen him in a situation which really allowed for his distinction. And that was very, uh, something was startling to me because he'd always uh, been, he had listened very much to the children. He supported Kay's great uh, work. And he was also uh, paid very serious attention. He was the arbiter of the family and very quiet. And, uh, I never found him in any sense somebody who needed to show his uh, power. Claude Bissell. Ruff was, among other things, a great party man. And uh, curious enough, I remember him most vividly as a, uh, as a member of, a, of, a la of, of large parties which he used to give in the president's house. And he was, uh, he'd always be one of the last to leave and obviously was one who enjoyed himself most. Uh, if he was a left-wing radical, he didn't carry with it any of the puritanical attitudes of the left-wing radical. He was a person of great geniality and a person who, I think, inspired friendship. Prof McPherson lived and worked in a very active household. Kay McPherson was a leading figure in the Canadian peace movement through the voice of women and later an active force in feminist politics. They had three children. Kay was arrested in an anti-nuclear demonstration in Paris in 1964, flew to Hanoi in 1968, and put up draft dodgers in the basement. Prof supported her and described their different political styles as their domestic division of labor. Bruff the theorist, Kay the activist. I don't think he had any intention of getting involved in the practice of most of the activities that were going on if he could avoid them. I mean, sure, he went marching when the professors went to, on one memorable occasion, they were dug out of the U of T to go down to the American embassy. I think it was, I don't know whether it was Selma or what it was. And he managed to get himself into that, but it was a very unusual occurrence to, to get any activism of that kind. He was much more useful anyway, advising all the hot heads around him to, uh, as to what to do in the way of what to say and how to cope with situations and so on, which is what he was used for as much as possible. He was an instrument, and he played on that instrument, and he, he didn't suddenly become a drum when he essentially was a superb violin. Ursula Franklin. But he was an everlasting resource to the active peace movement. And again, as I've mentioned over the uh, Grievance Committee, the amount of time that Brough spent being available to check thoughts, to check briefs, to check ideas, was a major contribution. She, he was the sounding board. He was the, the sympathetic critic. He was a person one uh, talked to before presenting a brief. He would think of all the questions that people would ask. But he would also set things right at earlier stages. So he was a resource. He also was, as it was in the arts, a quiet but not unsubstantial supporter in terms of money. So I think it was the activity that was appropriate for that person in that sense, in that sense of being a highly precious instrument. I mean, he, he was an intellectual Stradivarius. And you don't take that out in the rain. Frequently, at meals or any other time, he would uh, announce, I'm sorry, I just had an idea. Go on and I'll be back. And he would go off and closet himself in his whatever study there was at the time. and. Uh, he might come back in 10 minutes or in a couple of hours, but obviously, you know, something was churning on, whether he was carving the dinner or anything else. But that happened quite often, or maybe in the middle of the night, he'd occasionally get up and go up to his study and write for an hour. So uh, all this theory was going on all the time, whatever, whatever else we were doing.
In the last few years of his life, Ruff McPherson suffered increasingly from emphysema, though he continued his work right till the end. He died on July 21, 1987. His daughter Susan was with him. My mother and I sat with my father and took turns holding his hand, and, and we just talked with each other because he wasn't really talking. Uh, he wasn't talking at all. And he was just breathing very slowly and with his oxygen mask on. And the nurse would come in every once in a while and turn him from one side to the other. And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I was sitting, my mother was holding his hand, and I was, we were talking, and I was watching my father, and I just, I had seen a couple of occasions on which I wasn't sure if he was going to take another breath. There was like a long pause in between breaths, and then he'd start again. And then I saw just, there wasn't another breath. And I interrupted my mother, who was telling me something about, something unrelated. And I said, I think there isn't, he isn't breathing anymore. And she looked, and he actually died very peacefully. Just, uh, I think it was two or three days before he died, um, he was very weak from the illness and he still, you know, he had his humor and actually the last discussion we had was on hops. I was preparing a paper for a conference on hops and we just chatted again and again. So he was, um, I think he was quite unique. And the more I, I think back on our relationship, the more I tend to respect uh, his style, the way he did it. That was C.B. McPherson, a retrospective, the second and final program in a two-part series written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations, Lauren Tulk, Derek Stubbs, and Joanne Anker. Special thanks to Ken Pewley at CBC Radio Archives and to Kay McPherson for her cooperation and permission to quote from unpublished papers. The producer was Marilyn Powell. We've prepared a printed transcript of this two-part series. It costs $5, and you can get a copy by writing to C.B. McPherson, CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. C.B. McPherson's 1965 Massey Lectures, The Real World of Democracy, are also available from CBC Enterprises. Poet, playwright, politician, humanist, ambassador, scholar, philosopher, Niccolò Machiavelli was the very definition of a Renaissance man. Born in Florence in 1469, his life is impossible to separate from the turbulent politics of his native city. We consider Machiavelli's philosophy in the context of his times and our own. Tomorrow night on ideas, Machiavelli, old devil or modern master. The executive producer of ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintley. Good night.